0: Hi, this is Dr. Jung Ngô, and today we'll be mapping resilience on the 15-Minute Matrix.
1: Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Dr. No. Dr. No specializes in complex chronic conditions, focusing on the risk and resilience factors in a person's life that contribute to their condition. He has extensive experience working with integrated teams of clinicians and researchers in the fields of chronic pain and resilience. His mission is to break down professional silos and help patients to deliberately use their resources to mitigate the effects of adversity in their lives. You may already know that resilience is one of my favorite topics. I love to look at the topic from every angle, the fortitude of a bridge, the recovery of our earth after a natural disaster, and of course, the healing powers of the body resilience is a topic that I covered back in episode number 155 of the podcast with Eileen McDar. But honestly, we cannot discuss the topic enough. And Dr. No has such a solid perspective on the topic that I couldn't wait to dive in with him. You're going to love this conversation as much as I did. Dr. No, welcome to the 15 Minute Matrix podcast. I'm so excited to have this time with you.
0: Thanks. I'm excited to be here.
1: So, it has been said that your approach to chronic pain, breaks down the barriers between different healthcare disciplines, and challenges each clinician's preconceptions about health and disease. And I love this. It's very much in alignment with my own mission and work, as we were talking about before we hit record. In what ways do you see our understanding of resilience as having the ability to dismantle those barriers that we've created in healthcare?
0: Well, the current paradigm in healthcare is a pathogenic paradigm. And so basically we look for problems with the person when they're going through something. And resilience has to do with the amount of resources in a person's life. And it sort of expands that a little bit. So, for example, there are populations who suffer from things, but it's really not them. The military is one example where if you have a person who their commanding officer says, okay, I want you to shoot this person, this child. And the person says, oh, I don't want to do that. That's against my morals. But the commanding officer persists and says, if you don't do this, we're going to court-martial you, we're going to punish you and whatnot. So the person does that, and then they feel guilty about that, and they have PTSD and whatnot. And the military says, okay, well, you know, you have all of these symptoms of PTSD, go get treated. And so the system tries to treat the person and their symptoms, but it's not the person that's the problem. It is the system that's the problem. The restaurant system, you have a brigade system just like the military system. So we have a lot of people who are are cooks in kitchens who face the same amount of bullying and abuse. And then you have indigenous populations, you have immigrant populations. So resilience takes a look at them in toto, Instead of just trying to say, okay, what's wrong with you? Let's try to figure out what's wrong with you. Resilience asks the question, given all the things that's wrong with a person, or given all of the risk factors that a person has, why do some people overcome that? How is that possible? And so it's called a positive approach because it looks at all of the good things that can happen in your life as well.
1: It's so fascinating. When you were talking, Dr. No, I was thinking of the book Dirty Work, by A.L. Press. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. The work is about essential jobs and the hidden toll of inequality in America. Again, it's A.L. Press, if anybody's interested in it. But just that toll that these jobs, like these military jobs or these restaurant jobs, or slaughterhouses for animals that we eat, the things we don't want to look at in our society and the toll that actually takes on the human physiology and psychology and how if we look at that more fully and we don't silence the stories, we have an opportunity to tap into that inner resilience that we may currently be gaslighting in our current healthcare system.
0: Definitely. Some of the most competent clinicians I know, they constantly tell me that we tend to pathologize everything. That's not a good thing.
1: Yeah. And you and I both embrace this term post-traumatic growth. And I'm curious, how do we help our clients and patients tap into that potential for their innate and inner resiliency? Because I mean, do some of us have a resiliency gene and others don't? Or has life kind of beaten it out of us?
0: (laughs) That's a great question. And I think the general public or the, the media tends to say that resilient is something that is a trait. It's something within us. But the research shows that it's not that at all. Well, first of all, let's define what resiliency is. Resilience is the capacity to positively adapt to a threat or challenge. So let me break that down a little bit. If you could imagine a chart with time on the x-axis and function on the y-axis. Now, everybody functions at a certain level. So there's a certain line along the y-axis. And at some points in our lives, we are going to be faced with a challenge okay, or a threat. So when that threat happens, there are four general things that can happen. The first thing that can happen is that the function decreases and then the person just stays there and that's called breakdown. The second thing that can happen is their function decreases and then they get back to the same level of function as before. And that's called recovery. The third thing that can happen is that the challenge happens and their function just stays the same. And that's called persistence or resistance. Two different scenarios, but it looks pretty much the same in terms of functionality. And then the last thing that can happen is that a person's function could decrease a little bit and then actually go higher than it did before. And that's called post-traumatic growth or transformation. So recovery, persistence, and post-traumatic growth, those three resilience outcomes, they're in stark uh, contrast to a breakdown. So resilience is basically a process. The question is, what mechanisms allow a person to persist, recover, or transform as opposed to breakdown?
1: I love how you just broke that down. I always love a system and you really outlined it for us. So what does allow an individual to persist, recover, or transform? I wish I could take
0: the credit, but uh, it's in the (laughs) research. (laughs) (laughs) So what the researchers have found is that there are several interdependent realms of resilience mechanisms. And for our purposes today, I'll break them down into biological, psychological, and ecological. So the biological resilience factors are the ability to, or it's your body's ability, to regulate the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems, proper immune system functioning, proper cellular aging, genetics and epigenetics, good brain activity. Now, of course, this isn't an exhaustive list, but I just wanted to give you some examples. Psychological resilience factors include a strong identity, cognitive and emotional flexibility, self-control, optimism, social intelligence, the ability to make sense or meaning out of a bad situation, perseverance, accountability, creativity, personal agency, And then in the environment or ecological resilience mechanisms are things such as supportive relationships, belonging to a community, having a sense of power and control, feeling safe, physical capital such as shelter, clothing, time and energy, natural capital like sunlight, fresh air, financial capital, a predictive routine, social justice, fun, excitement, and a culture that validates a person's identity. Now the interesting thing to me is that these mechanisms they are interchangeable, or they can be converted from one thing to another. So, for example, as an immigrant, I was exposed to a lot of adverse childhood experiences, but I was lucky to have grown up in Victoria, British Columbia, where I also received some benevolent childhood experiences, which is the resilience counterpart of the ACEs or Adverse Childhood Experiences. So in the 80s, Victoria, British Columbia was mainly a white community, but they accepted the Asian immigrants. As a matter of fact, I think that my teachers probably had a bias that Asians are industrious and smart. And so that bias worked to my advantage because my teachers always gave me the message that I am exceptional. So this built a very strong identity of myself feeling like I am an exceptional person. So when I failed at something, I had a lot of good memories of success. So because I had that bank account, I could easily reframe any of my bad experiences into a minor setback instead of a disaster. And so when I did face something bad, my nervous system didn't become hyper-aroused, and I was able to stay calm in situations. So this made me likable to people around me, and that increased my social capital and gave me access to opportunities and more resources, et cetera, et cetera. That's how the different resources, ecological, psychological, and biological, can all interweave into each other. And I was lucky. But the work in resilience is to try to figure out, is there a way for us to deliberately change a person's life in order for them to access these resilience mechanisms.
1: It's really fascinating. And, you know, it mirrors and mimics the matrix and all that you're talking about. That we can't just look at one factor when we're talking about pain. We can't just think about it as one node of the matrix. As I like to say, everything is connected. We are all unique and all things matter. And it's really taking that into account. And I've heard you speak about the identity and the belonging and just even dialogue. Diving in at that level with our patients who are experiencing chronic health challenges or chronic pain and understanding where those adverse childhood experiences or that sense of belonging may be have been lost along the way, especially being a person who is in pain, who may be putting on a strong face or having to persist through when they don't have the inner resources. It's just fascinating to think about where we direct our care and attention and how we're missing opportunities to support healing.
0: Absolutely. I think that the new types of clinicians that you're trying to teach and develop. I love that. And on my side, I'm trying to do that as well because we really do need to look at a person all around. When a person comes in with pain, we have to say, okay, well, is it biological? Is it something having to do with their movement or their nerves or their joints or their fascia or their diet? Is it a perception? of a situation. So a person who's like too stressed for time or energy or who feels guilty about something, that can also manifest as a sense of threat and therefore pain. Or is it something altogether different? Is it the fact that they're in a system that doesn't welcome them? I would hate to be a person in the LGBT community a couple centuries back. As a matter of fact, uh, some of the people I've been talking to recently, they came from small towns in Canada and these small towns, they don't really understand LGBT. So these people who are gay, they grew up saying, I feel torn inside, I feel so uncomfortable inside, I don't know what's wrong with me, and try to get somebody to fix that person. Whereas they would come to a big city like Toronto, Ontario, and they would say, oh, that's it, I'm gay.
1: Right. I belong. I (laughs) have my place of belonging when I've felt like I haven't belonged for my entire lifetime.
0: Yeah. I know what I am now. And it's accepted.
1: Yeah. And that's true of any person in a minority of any sort. Like when we have to find our way. I mean, your life as an immigrant and the story you shared, for me, being a young widow, right? Like that made me other. And I, didn't belong. And people would ask me, do you have good days and bad days? And I'd say, yeah, but the bad days aren't the ones where I cry. The bad days are when I cannot see myself reflected. You know, I have a baby on my hip and I'm everybody's walking worst nightmare. (laughs) Those are my bad days when I can't find the way to opt in to where I do connect and fit. And I think that's a huge piece that we're overlooking in chronic care. And and you mentioned it could be this and this and this, and it could be many of those things, right? It's not usually just one. So what do we do to help foster that resilience in ourselves and also for our clients and patients?
0: So what I've learned is there's a sort of a protocol that we go through. The first step is to identify what the threat is. And is this threat an issue of not having enough time, money, or energy? Is it a fact that a person feels a lack of power or control? Do they feel isolated? Do they have a broken identity? Any of the resilience factors that I mentioned earlier on, they have a counterpart, which is called a vulnerability. So if you lack those resilience factors in your life, then you may have a vulnerability. And so we identify what that vulnerability is. Then the next question is to ask, is that threat real? And remember earlier on, I said how a person on that X and Y axis, they have a certain level of functioning. Well, who decides what that level of functioning is? It's the individual. So for example, there was a person, he identifies himself as a responsible person and he always is on time. But he joined this company where one of the VPs who organizes schedules always sends things out at the last minute. So this patient is always a couple of minutes late for things and he is stressed out like crazy. But everybody in the company says, you know what? We understand that it's a systemic problem. The VP is not good at organizing. So to us, on time means within five minutes. And so he had a choice then. He said, okay, I define my functioning as always on time. And that became a threat to him. Being always two minutes late was a threat for him. So we said to him, can you not redefine that? And so if he redefines this level of functioning, all of a sudden the threat goes away. It's not a real threat. It was him that defined something that caused him to perceive it as a threat. And once he realized that, you know what, I can still be on time everywhere else, but within the confines of this company, within five minutes is on time, and I accept that, well, he stopped feeling the gut issues and the tight muscles that he felt when he was always late.
1: Oh my gosh, that's totally me. When my son was little, I had to explain to him, like, when you are late and making me late, it makes me uncomfortable on the inside. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But that recognition and helping our clients and patients identify those little moments that put us into that fight or flight state, that sympathetic state, that state of not feeling safe because of how we've identified something are those little tiny dials that help us to shift the entire internal terrain.
0: And, you know, if a person's never had children, they wouldn't understand. I have three young kids of my own. And one of the biggest challenges that I've had to face is changing my expectations uh, and and realizing everybody's (laughs) expectations is different. And that's made me infinitely more patient. So once we decide whether or not the threat is real and we determine the threat is real, then what we do is in uh, social work, they call it the social eco map. So basically we take a full inventory of a person's resources, including their relationships, organizations that belong to, places they spend a lot of time in, material assets, their routines and habits, and even how they identify themselves. And I see a lot of these things on the matrix. And once we've sort of had that inventory, then we ask three questions. The first question is, what resources can you use to directly absorb a threat? So for example, if I'm always pressed for time, can I use my social capital to delegate a task? Or use my money, my financial capital, to hire somebody to do a task for me? The second question is, what resources can you use to escape or divert yourself from a threat? So if I feel like I have no control in my workplace, do I have a hobby that I can engage in to take my mind off of work, such as playing music, cooking, gardening or sports or something like that? And the third question is, what resources can I use to endure a threat? Some people use their relationship with God, spirituality, and say, you know what, whatever happens to me, God, you gave this to me, so I give it back to you. My parents, when they escaped from Vietnam, they came from well-to-do families. But then we became very, very poor in Canada, and my parents, who were in their 30s at the time, had to answer to their 20-year-old bosses who somewhat looked down on them. And so my parents endured that humiliation for me and my siblings. Now, other people, they define themselves as curious. So when bad situations happen, they simply see it, as learning experiences instead of threats. So that allows them to endure more. And I find asking these questions, they might not help a person find answers, but at least it plants seeds for them to think differently about their resources.
1: Dr. No, I could speak to you for hours. I feel like there's so much we could dive into. I'm wondering if you had one thing that you could tell practitioners to kind of wake us up to how we might be addressing chronic pain all wrong or overlooking resilience? Is there one thing that you wish we could all get into our noggins to shift things and help patients on their journeys?
0: There's no one single answer. I think that a lot of marketing out there says that, oh, I have the answer to chronic pain or have the answer to something. And I find that some things work For some people, other things work for other people. There's no single answer. It's a process of asking the right questions. And I think that if you ask the patient the right questions and you step back and don't just say, what's wrong with you? But let's say, where are the vulnerabilities? Where are the opportunities? And instead of just looking at what is the fix, say, what resources can you use? What good things? are in a person's life that can help them through this as well, instead of just what bad things or what broken things need to be fixed. Then I think that sort of stepping back, being open to possibilities, being open to the individual, and being open to your own role with the person. I mean, like, I was trained to fix people, but I have met so many people where all I do is listen. Or all I do is give them corrective experiences or validate them. And that in itself is what they need in order to get better.
1: Mm, Yeah, I love that. I'm going to add that oftentimes clinicians are caught in the trap where they think their value is in the opportunity to fix. And in that situation, they're not in their safe space And so a lot of us need to shift what our relationship is to supporting the person. And so I'm hearing what you're sharing with us, Dr. No, through two lenses, the lens of the clinician and also the lens of the patient. And that's really where we come into what I like to think of as functional empathy. Thank you so much for the work you do and for sharing your wisdom with us today. I really just savor this conversation with you.
0: It's been a real pleasure.
1: The 15-Minute Matrix is hosted and produced by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The podcast is edited and mixed by Brian Paik of Pacific Audio, and special thanks to Natalie Merrill, Alia Hale, Pamela Geismar, and Rowan Bradley for their support in making The 15-Minute Matrix possible. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to see the completed functional nutrition matrix that accompanies today's or any episode, be sure to head over to the podcast website. Again, that's one five We love when you share our episodes with your friends and colleagues, leave a review and rate the show. That helps us to grow our collective message that functional nutrition is the future of healthcare. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Functional Nutrition Alliance, and you can follow me at Andrea Nakayama. And if you or someone you know is interested in becoming a functional nutrition counselor, head over to fxnutrition.com to learn more about our Full Body Systems program. Full Body Systems is our 10-month immersion course where you'll learn the systems-based approach to addressing the root causes of your client's issues through client education, diet, and lifestyle modification. Again, you can always learn more at fxnutrition.com.